righteous still, and he that is holy, let him be holy still. We've been on a long journey for many months studying here in the book of Revelation, and I think all of us would say that this is a fascinating book, that uh, it's a very, very strange book, we would have to say that. It begins with, a, with beatitude, uh, that means a blessing, that God gives a blessing for the study of this book. In, in the first chapter, in verse number 3, it says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. There's a blessing for this. And there's much valuable information in this book. It contains a tremendous amount of pain and suffering for uh, woe and woe is for those that are unbelievers. But more importantly than that, I think it contains great hope for those who have their faith in Christ. If you have ever felt that everything is against you and that times are hard and you have no idea how you're going to survive, you need to pick up the book of Revelation just to see how blessed the people of God are. And I think it's very fitting that here in these last two chapters of the Bible we have this extended description of heaven that we've been talking about for the past several weeks. And I think that that section is needed. Uh, You read all about these calamities that will come upon the earth and how hard it will be for Christians that, that are in the tribulation period and how they're going to be severely tested. But we know through all of that that God is able, that God provides security for his people. And even though there are many lives that are going to be lost during that time for the cause of Christ, yet there's not one of those for whom Christ died that will fail to reach their eternal destination in heaven. And so the hope of this book is that those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world, the hope for them is that they will receive the promise of God and all of them will enter into God's rest and live, live with him eternally. And we're not just talking about people in the future, not just people during the time of, uh, of the tribulation period, but we're talking about all people of God in all ages of all time. That means you and me right here tonight. Believers in Jesus Christ, we, are going to every, we can have every confidence that we're going to be in the presence of God. But despite all of this good information that we find here, there are many people, even many great men of God, that have uh, shied away from teaching the book of Revelation. Now, God gave us this promise, a blessing here, that if we're willing to take this book and read it and learn from it, that we will receive a blessing But there have been many that have been unwilling to claim that blessing because of the task of explaining it, because it's a very daunting task to many people to open up the book of Revelation and try to understand what it means. And if you have devised a wrong scheme of interpretation for this book, then I can understand why you wouldn't want to tackle it. I wouldn't want to get into the book of Revelation if I was all millinery. I wouldn't want to do it if I was post-millinery. I wouldn't want to do it if I was preterist. I would not tackle this book. You have to have a right interpretation. Now, several weeks ago, when I was uh, deciding what book of the Bible that we would study next, I made a comment that I have to be careful about what I choose because some books of the Bible are harder to teach than others. I mean, I think we would all agree that the book of Romans would be much harder to teach than the book of Esther. And so I want to be very careful about which ones that I choose, which ones that I put together for the different services, because the amount of reading and studying and going through all the source material for them can be an overwhelming task. 
and I want to do a good job at this. And, and with my inadequacies, I know that I have to study harder, I have to work harder so that I don't shortchange you. Well, there was someone who asked me after those comments what I thought about preaching from the book of Revelation. What about Revelation? Well, Revelation is difficult in some respects, but I don't find it to be as hard as some of the studies that we've done. Um, and that might be because I've taught through it three other times, not in this detail. But I take it very seriously, this beatitude that we've been given here at the beginning, that there is a blessing attached to this. God wants us to know this truth. And I trust God in what he says. And if he says that there's a blessing for studying this, then I want to have that blessing. And I want you to have it too. And so after all these many months of going through this book, we've now reached the epilogue. And not only is it the epilogue of Revelation, but this is the epilogue of the entire Word of God. Now you think about that for just a moment, about what God says at the end of this book. And if you were the greatest person that ever lived, and you wrote a book that uh, would be read by more people than any in the history of the world, uh, when you would write a book that endured centuries of testing and a book that's consistently on the bestseller list from year to year to year and that more people have devoted their lives to studying it and learning the, the, uh, the depths of it. And if you had a book that inspired people and spoke to them like nothing that they've ever read before and you knew all of that before you wrote the book and you planned out what you were going to write, what would you say at the end? What would you say at the end of such a book? You know, people are always interested in what the last words of great men are. I mean, I can uh, imagine someone bending over uh, some great philosopher and uh, listening to him as he whispers his last breath, wondering what kinds of words of wisdom would he give? What, what would he say? Well, if we're interested in what the words of great men are, then certainly we ought to be much more interested in what are the last words of God. And I can tell you that the last words of God are important for you because one thing that God never does, he never stops thinking about his people. And so the last words that we find in the Bible are words that are filled with more promises. There's also a final invitation for people to consider what's been said here and then for them to come to Christ for salvation. So this is the end of the Revelation, and we've been brought through some extremely captivating events as we've studied this. Uh, there's the scene in chapter 5 where there are these worshipers in heaven in heaven, in the numbers of 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And they all say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor. And then we studied about this book with seven seals, and there are horsemen of the apocalypse and there are demons and locusts and meteors and death and thunder and lightning and the Antichrist and the great whore and Babylon and Armageddon and Satan and the marriage supper and the millennial kingdom and the temple and the great white throne judgment and the lake of fire and the new earth. And then what we've just finished up studying, the new Jerusalem, the home of the redeemed of God. And so all of that is moving. It's just purely fascinating and then we have the last words. Here is the epilogue. So what are God's last words to mankind? I mean, after all that God has said, what does he say now? And surely we'd have to think, after all of this that we've read, the last words have to be a letdown. How can you top what's already been said? Well, I think of these last words that are spoken here, and I think of them 
like icing on the cake because God looks us right into the eye and he says, I am coming. And that's the theme of these last words. You have all the information you need. I've said all that I'm going to say and now I am coming. Get ready. Get prepared for this. I am coming. And so these last 16 verses contain words for, uh, final words for believers and unbelievers that Jesus is coming. And so we begin the epilogue with final words to believers. Now God has something to say to unbelievers as well, and we'll get to those words in later messages. Now notice what John says in verse number 6, and this is where we'll spend our time this evening. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true, And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Now our consideration tonight is the accuracy of the prophecy. The accuracy of the prophecy. Now what does a person think when he picks up the book of Revelation and he reads it? What do you think the reaction was to... Uh, the Apostle John, when he put these words down on parchment and then he sent it out to the churches that were in his area. Now, as you remember, this is a letter that was intended to be on a circuit to the seven churches of Asia. So what do you think that they thought when this 90-year-old man writes this letter to them that has all of these different odd musings? What about this vision that he claimed to have? Why should anyone believe this? You know, I think about that when... We read things like what Joseph Smith wrote when he said that he found these golden plates that are a a different testament to people that live in America. And he claimed that he had talked to the angel Moroni and he came up with all of these very strange teachings that the Mormon church teaches. What do you think about that? I mean, what do you think about what Joseph Smith said? Well, those of you that use Microsoft Word... You know that when you type a word that's not a word or you misspell a word, that the program puts a little red squiggly line underneath of it. And if you make a mistake, then you right-click on that word and then up pops a, a menu there that gives you some suggestions about what you should have written. So I typed Moroni into my document in, in Word as I was making the message and Word put a little squiggly line under it. So I right-clicked it to find out what did it suggest that I should have put there. And first on the list was moron, that I should have replaced it with moron. And I didn't really know that Bill Gates was on my side of this issue. But that's, that's kind of the way that I sum up all of these fantastic musings of Joseph Smith. They are the musings of a moron. Well... Maybe I shouldn't say a moron because he was actually a very slick false prophet and there are a lot of people that follow him. Uh, My opinion of him, uh, if he was alive today, we would put him in jail for being a child molester. And you could look that up and study that out if you want to. But what about the Apostle John? I mean, here he is, uh, and he must have thought about this when he wrote these things down. What are people going to say about this? What are they going to say about what I've written, all these claims that I've made? And so there's an angel then that comes to John and he says to him, these sayings are faithful and true. These are not the made-up stories of a delusional old man. And the angel wants John specifically to know this. John, you're not dreaming about this. You know, it's like I often say, uh, it's not a pizza dream that caused this. John really uh, has the truth here. And the angel wants him to know this. This is the truth. This is going to happen. 
Well, some people may read this and they would think, well, yes, John uh, dreamed all of this and there's some significance to that dream. It's certainly important. It's recorded in the Bible. So we can just attach some mystical meanings to this. Now, I've told you before that some of my worst nightmares are that I would come into the pulpit unprepared. And I, I dream sometimes that I come up here to preach and I forgot to put my pants on. Now, don't visualize that, but that's what I dream sometimes. And I interpret that as a sign that I need to be prepared, that I need to be ready. And sometimes I'll dream a dream where I've forgotten to study or I leave my notes at home and I don't have those and I have to get up to preach. And I, you know, I kind of attach somewhat of a significance to that, that it's trying to tell me something. You need to be prepared. Well, as we look at this, is this a dream that's to be interpreted with certain signs and symbols? Do we interpret this as allegory? No, the angel came to John to tell him these things are real. These are things that will actually happen. This came from God. Now, that might not mean too much to a skeptical world until they do something, until they look at God's track record. Now, let's talk a little bit about that tonight. When God speaks, God's word is certain. I know that this is not a book that's been written by man because it's not in the heart of man to write what John wrote. There is no man that writes about Jesus Christ and exalts him and puts man down into the dust where he belongs. Whoever writes a book like that? I mean, a person that has not been regenerated and changed by God would never do that. You read what the world's authors have to say about Jesus and see if they believe that he was really God. See if they ever make man the vile, immoral creature that he is. Humanistic books exalt man. They talk about men needing more self-esteem and their morality. Talk about man's morality. It's not God's morality, it's their morality. And they want to be judged on their standards and not on God's. And then I know that this is a book that must have come from God because there is no one who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God who would claim to write words of inspiration, that they wrote words that they said were inspired by God when in fact they didn't come from God. You're not going to find true faithful believers that say they have received new revelations from God. There's no one that's truly saved that claims that they write or speak under divine inspiration. Do you know who claims such things as that? Only people that have demons. Only people that have demons. They make those claims, and they make those because Satan is a liar. He is a counterfeit. He seeks to confuse and to obfuscate truth. And so these people who do that are from Satan. And folks, there's just no way that we can say something nice about that. There's no nice way to put that. Now, if you've read this book, You sense the character of Satan. You know what he's about. And you can't be gentle and understanding with people that do this work for him. And so what you have to do, you must expose their lies for what they are. And if you hurt their feelings, well, that's not nearly as bad as as the unimaginable hurt that they're going to experience when they're put into the lake of fire. So what God says here is ratified by his angel to tell his people that these things will come to pass. Now, maybe you've never heard anything like this. It's certain that the world has never seen anything like this. Nobody's ever experienced this. But you had best believe it because God said it, and God is always true. And you better believe that every word of this prophecy will go, will not go, uh, would, would ever go unfulfilled. 
Now, think about what, for a minute, what God says about Armageddon. And he tells us that the nations will be gathered there in this system of valleys that run from the northwest of Jerusalem down to the southeast, that all the people of the world, the, the, the armies of the world, will come there and gather together to do battle against the king of kings. And what does this book say will happen to them? Well, it tells us that uh, the angels will come and slice and dice them as they do battle against the Lord and that their blood will flow in a river for 200 miles long. And that blood is deep enough that it splashes up on a horse's bridles. Wild beasts and carrion-eating birds will come and feast on their flesh. There won't be enough to bury them all. Will that happen? Well, God says that it's certain. You think back on the ninth chapter about demons that are released from the bottomless pit, right from the very pit of hell. And these are demons that have been chained there and they've been there for thousands of years. Their rage has been built up. They're straining at those chains to get set free. And then finally God lets them loose and these demons come and they fill the entire earth. The Bible describes them as demons like locusts. They have stingers like scorpions. And for five months they're let loose upon the earth. And they come and, they, uh, and they're, they're, they're torture and that stinger is so ghastly that men cry out for death. They wish they were dead, but they can't die because God keeps them alive to experience that torture. Is that really going to happen? Well, God says that it's certain. Then we think about the sixth chapter where it says that there are so many meteors that strike the earth that it's like a fig tree shaken in the wind, like a fig tree drops its figs on the ground. And you think about chapter 16 where these great hailstones that are 100 pounds in weight fall from the sky. Will that happen? Well, the angel says it's certain. These sayings are faithful and true. And then you think about the judgment in chapter 20 that millions of people are resurrected from their graves and their bodies rejoin their spirits that have been held in Hades. Then they're judged And then they're thrown into the everlasting lake of fire to be tormented forever. And they exist in that torturous death. They're apart from God. They're forgotten by God. They're forsaken by God. Will that happen? These sayings are faithful and true. You see, when God speaks, his words are certain. It's sure to happen. It's set in stone. It's spoken. It's written. You can mark it down. It's not going to change. We're not reading here about things that could happen. This is not a potential outcome. You see, before the world was ever created, God predestined that this would happen. Now, I know some people don't like predestination, but I don't know how you could read this without fully understanding that God is orchestrating every movement here according to his divine plan. And that is how God works. He knows the end from the beginning. How does he know that? I mean, is he knowledgeable of these things because he sees a future out there of random happenings? No, it's certain because God works these things, as the word of God says, according to the counsel of his own will. Things come to pass because God brings them to pass. Now, if God predestined this, then, or did not predestine it, then he didn't predestine Christ either. I mean, Christ coming to rule the world in in perfect righteousness is a part of God's eternal plan. Heaven is a part of that eternal plan. And if we believe that any part of this is random, then we would also have to believe that what Christ did is random. But God spoke it, it's certain, because he sovereignly determined it. 
But then we can take this a step further, and we can also say that God's word is reliable. I mentioned a moment ago that God has a track record. He spoke before, and it happened. Well, this prophecy that we're reading about here is yet future, and so can we have any confidence that the future is as certain as the past? Well, for those of you that are interested in apologetics, this is a very important defense for the Word of God. Now, sometimes you might be called upon to defend the Word of God because there are many people that believe that the Bible is filled with myths and legends, that these are just uh, fairy tales. Uh, people even used to say that Jesus was not an historical person, not even real. Now, you hardly find anybody today that would say that, but uh, there are critics of the Bible. And I think about this, and I think about the story of, of Sir William Ramsey, who was a, human, a humanist archaeologist, and he didn't believe the Bible. And so he set out on a quest to prove through archaeology that the Bible was untrue. And you know what happened to him? He took time to research all of these things that he said could not be true, and he researched and he went looking for places and events that he said never happened because they had not been discovered And do you know what his conclusion was? He became a believer. He was saved because he had never found or said he never found any errors in the Bible. That the Bible told him things that no one could ever know unless it was divinely inspired. And that's in the field of archaeology. Then we can also look at the agreement of the biblical authors over a period of of time that the Bible was written. You have 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years. They didn't know each other. Many of them worked, or many of them didn't know each other, and they worked independently of each other. And yet over all of that time, their writings are in perfect agreement. And that's impossible unless there would be collusion, unless the Bible is divinely inspired. All of that is compelling evidence for the reliability of the Bible. But here we're talking about prophecy, Does the Bible tell us the future? And has the Bible ever been right about the future? Well, I could start to list for you Bible prophecies, but I don't think that you want to sit here while I went through all of them. Uh, The best Bible scholars say that they can identify (coughs) over 300 prophecies concerning Christ's first advent that are talked about in the Old Testament that were fulfilled when Christ came the first time. Now, the Old Testament told what Jesus would do, and when he came, all of these prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled. And you know, there's some people look at that, and they realize that that we do have some evidence for this, and they say, well, no. No, what Jesus did was that he read the Old Testament, and that Jesus made these prophecies come true by just living them out. And that's how the prophecies came true. Well, that's a nice theory, Einstein, but you'd have to look at this and uh, wonder how in the world there must have been a lot of kicking and prodding and, and screaming going along and passing secret notes to Mary when Jesus was in her womb telling her, you know something, Mom? I've got to be born in Bethlehem, not in Nazareth. So you and Joseph had better get down there right quick so I can be born in Bethlehem. That's what the Bible said. The Bible says in the book of Micah that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. That's why Herod went to the priest and said, where's he going to be born? Look into the scriptures. Where does it say this? I mean, even Herod had enough sense to know to believe the prophecies concerning Christ. So how do we determine if what John wrote is true? Well, what you do is you begin to look at the reliability of prophecy concerning the first advent, that you have 330 of 330 prophecies came, that came true. Now, what would you call that? 
I would call that 100% accuracy. That's what it is. Now, would that be enough for you to go on? I mean, would you accept prophecies about the second advent because you know that there's 100% accuracy concerning the first advent? It shows you that God is reliable. And what God has done, he holds himself to the ultimate standard. Now, most of us would probably be okay if, and we'd probably believe someone if they were 80% right, if they were 75% right. I mean, if Harold, Harold Camping was right 75% of time on prophecies that he gave, I'd probably have been down there in that warehouse May 21st last year with all the rest of them because I wouldn't want to take a chance on somebody that's right 75% of the time. But 75% is not good enough for God. You know why? Because a true prophet is right 100% of the time. God can never be wrong. Now, I like what John MacArthur had to say about this. This was many, many years ago. (coughs) He was commenting about the guy who wrote the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1988. And MacArthur said, you know, it's bad to write a book and to be wrong. But he said, it's really bad to be wrong 88 times. Well, that's not the way that God is. 98%, 99%, 99.5.5% is not good enough for God. He is right 100% of the time. When God speaks, he's reliable. Now, if there was ever a prophecy that God gave that didn't come true, then it means that God fails. God would fail if his prophecies don't come true. Now, it's as simple as this, folks. The Bible says that God cannot lie. And if that statement is not true, then it means the Bible is not God's book. And as fantastic as these prophecies are, who would believe that the Bible is is a true book and yet not think that God's just missed another prophecy because something he said before didn't come true? What we have to rely on all the time is God's past record of 100% accuracy. And then we notice that this is the third time in this book that this is specially emphasized. The other two are in chapter 19, verse 9, and in chapter 21, verse 5. In the 19th chapter, verse 9, And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. In chapter 21, verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, these words are true and faithful. And if you want even more testimony on that, you go down to verse number 16 in chapter 22. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And so Jesus Christ, the one who is Lord, the righteous king, said, I've sent my, my angel to tell you about this. This is not fantasy. And so if you want to know the reason that tops all the other reasons why we should believe this and why the scripture is not to be tampered with, it's because Jesus commanded an angel to come and tell John the words are faithful and true. The God of the holy prophet sent his angel. And so the epilogue of this book confirms the accuracy of everything that's spoken here. And John was very careful to write down everything exactly as he saw it, as he was told it. He wrote it down exactly as God said, a perfect record of this. Now, as wild and fanciful as that might seem to be, and as foolish as some think that we are for spending so much time on this, we can't do otherwise. You know why? Because God spoke it. 
God's the one who said this. He commanded this to be written. Several months ago, I was preaching here on Sunday night, and uh, I believe at that time I was talking about the opening of the seven seals. And we had some visitors that came in on Sunday night, and I hadn't seen them before. I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know anything about their background. And I was preaching a sermon on the on the opening of those seven seals. And I, and I have to be honest with you, I had a second train of thought that was going on in my mind as I was preaching that. I was thinking, what do these people think about what I'm saying? What do they think about this? They, do they think we here, here at Berean are just a bunch of crazy people? That we believe these things? I mean, they're actually teaching that? And from my human side, I, I'm saying this, I'm coming off as a fool. But then I very quickly dismissed that kind of thinking because I realized that the entire word of God is foolishness to unbelievers. All of this isn't too incredible for them to believe anyway unless God opens their eyes to believe it. And when they open, when their eyes are open to the truth, it's not because of what I said, it's because of what God does. It's all in God's hands. So I expect every person that comes into this building, if they're not a believer in Jesus Christ, that they won't believe anything we have to say, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, until the Holy Spirit illuminates their heart to the truth. So God said this. His word is certain. It's reliable, and I believe it. No matter how much that cuts across the grain of human reasoning, I believe it. No matter how much it goes against human wisdom and reason, it doesn't matter to me because God is the only real voice of reason. Now let me make one more comment for you, and this will go pretty quick. We're a little bit late here. But uh, I'll make a comment here about one more about verse 6, and then we'll be done. I just want to consider for just a moment the, the role of angels in the revelation of prophecy. So thirdly is the administration of angels in prophecy. It says, The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. In Hebrews we have this scripture, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will." So the Bible is telling us that God in the past has used angels to convey messages to men. Now this particular scripture that I just read to you has reference to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And it's kind of an interesting point, I think, because uh, the Old Testament doesn't tell us anything about angels being involved with the giving of the law at Sinai. And we don't know exactly how angels were used. But Stephen confirmed that. Stephen confirmed it when he was speaking to the Sanhedrin. In Acts 7.35 and in 53, this Moses whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and deliver by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. And then verse 53, Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Then Paul also spoke of angels in the giving of the law in the book of Galatians. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained in the, by angels 
in the hand of a mediator. Now here in our text, an angel is a messenger of God to ratify the vision to John as being a true vision. He said it's certain it's going to come to pass. Now in the last part of this verse, it says that this was done to show God's servants or believers with that which must shortly be done. What does he mean by that statement? That which must shortly be done. Well, we're going to talk about that before we're through. Uh, Not tonight. We'll talk about it at another time. But this prophecy is accurate. And the angel says, these are things which shortly must be done. Or this is what God says. These are things that shortly must be done. Well, how do we know that Christ is coming? How do we really know that? We know it because the words of God's prophecy are faithful and true. These are the words of God. It's written in the Holy Scriptures, and we believe it because it's God's infallible, inspired word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful blessing that you've given us of your word and how important the last words that we read in the Bible are. And Lord, uh, as you've spoken this so clearly that you are coming, we need to be prepared for this. We need to pay close heed to these words that are given here. This is the hope of every person uh, who's saved in this building tonight. And as we get into the message a little bit later, uh, Lord, you've, you've told us throughout your word that you are coming back and we are to expect it and we do believe it. Thank you, Lord, for the night that you've given us, for the word that you've given, and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.